The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Welcome to the FDF podcast sponsored by Clark Energy. I thought that um, in this week of all weeks on today when Henry Dimbleby has published part two of his national food strategy that I would concentrate the questions about that. And so I thought I'd ask you, first of all, for your initial impressions of the strategy paper. Well, I think it's uh, an important contribution to the long-term debate on our national food strategy. I think it's very important that we keep stressing in a way that for some reason uh, hasn't necessarily always been clear that uh, this isn't the national food strategy itself. It is the contribution of an independent reviewer to it. Um, and you can tell that this is a personal contribution uh, from Henry Dimbleby by the fact that the 200 and odd pages are written in the first person. So it is I and me and I think. Uh, and that's helpful, I think, because it, 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 it makes it very clear that this is the personal reflection of someone closely involved in the food industry from a, with a background in uh, background as a restaurateur and an entrepreneur in the industry and also of course the senior non-exec at the department at DEFRA which I suppose must slightly question whether he's independent because he's clearly got an interest in DEFRA's management but leaving those things aside those procedural things aside it's a very comprehensive uh, report in the sense that it covers a lot of ground I think there are some strange omissions, so there's nothing on skills as far as I could see. And skills and uh, the ability of the labour force to do the work that we want it to do in food and drink is obviously very topical with our labour shortages at the moment. Uh, I think there are bits of it which are extremely um, contentious, which particularly relate to the sugar and salt tax proposal and the corporate reporting proposal and I think parts of it might be very contentious uh, with farmers but much of it is um, is to be com commended some of the stuff on school meals I think the suggestions on innovation as far as they go and I think other parts of it are, are um, it's a very worthwhile report I just think there are bits of quite a large number of bits of it with which the food and drink manufacturing industry won't agree yeah, and the, the proposal that's probably the most eye-catching and certainly catching quite a lot of attention in the media today is what he's been saying around proposing a salt and sugar tax. Uh, one of the things that I've seen him talking about and heard him talking about is that you know, he's just fine there saying, pointing to the soft drinks industry levy, saying how that uh, was the source of the reformulation by the industry for soft drinks. Is that true? Does that stack up? Well, it's half the story. Um, and it's, it, he is correct in saying that the imposition of the soft drinks levy uh, was followed by a very significant amount of uh, reformulation. Where he's, I think, a little awry is that all that reformulation was going on at the time. So it was in train, and indeed m much of the work had been done over the preceding years. So it wasn't as if the prospect of the levy was the driver of innovation. It, actually, it was consumer choice that was the driver of the innovation. Now, what then happened is that the imposition of the tax 
meant some strategic decisions were made by each of the major soft drinks businesses. And I think it's, while it is true that the sequence in which these things happened was the one that Henry, to which Henry refers, the actual fact, uh, fact is that there was more going on already. There is a lot of reformulation going on already across all food and drink, but it's slightly a slightly different situation. And, you know, putting a five times the cost of the current product kind of burden on the industry as it is with sugar is going to be a really heavy, heavy duty intervention, which can only really end up with much higher prices and much more significant burdens on the poorest families in our country. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. Um, a combined quick study by the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Public Institute and the Taxpayers Alliance, has estimated that the pass-on costs to consumers could be as much as £180 per household per year. I mean, do you think that this will be a significant way to help reduce obesity rates, or is this kind of misconstrued policy, which actually isn't that ineffective. It's only going to save a quarter to a third of a digested biscuit, that calorie intake a, a, a day. Well, I think, I think, there's a, there, I think that's a very important point, that, that the, that the uh, imposition of these taxes and the, the, the cost burdens on every household is, is disproportionate uh, to the eventual resulting calories uh, saved. But the other part of it is that you can't really have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand that costs will rise and that prices will rise and this will be a disincentive uh, to people to eat products with lots of salt or sugar in them and at the same time say the revenue you're going to raise is going to be enough to pay for uh, doctors to prescribe fruit and vegetables. I mean both can't be true. Either it will be a disincentive, in which case there won't be much revenue raised, or it will be relatively ineffective in changing behaviours, but there will be enough money raised to give people prescribed fruit and vegetables. Now, what happened with the soft drinks levy is that we were told at the start the money was potentially being hypothecated to playing fields, and that never happened, and the money raised was significantly lower because of the reformulation. And I think if the policy outcome you want is much lower consumption of these products, then a huge kind of nuclear strike in tax is probably, a, is, is at least a theoretically sensible thing to do. But you ain't gonna get your fruit and vegetables prescribed, paid for. And if you want your fruit and vegetables paid for, then you don't want people to change your behaviour. I noticed earlier today the Prime Minister said that he was, uh, I think he was, he was uncomfortable with the idea of putting on further taxes to people's food. Do you think this has got much of a chance of uh, being protected by the government? Um, I think with this Prime Minister, it's most unlikely. And I think with most Conservative Prime Ministers, the, the prospect of increasing taxes for this sort of policy outcome is probably quite difficult to deliver. I mean, I can imagine that the 70 or 80 uh, Tories in the um, COVID recovery group, who are pretty similar to the 70 or 80 Tories in the ERG, 
and who have a particular outlook on policy are, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them are somewhat unlikely to support higher taxes for these sorts of purposes. Now, of course, we know there are going to have to be government policy changes in order to uh, pay for all of the activity that we've seen in the last 18 months over, or last 16 months over COVID. So, but these, these uh, extra taxes on sugar and salt come in addition to the kinds of things that Rishi Sunak is presumably looking at to get uh, the Exchequer and the national debt into some kind of control. I just feel it's very unlikely that Sunak and Saj Javid and this Prime Minister are, are really going to embrace this sort of thinking that Henry Dimbleby has done. One of the other things that caught my eye was recommendations that he wanted companies uh, to share their reporting, especially quite sensitive commercial data. Is it, have I got that right? I mean, that doesn't sound like companies would be that willing to do that. I mean, is that even legal? Well, I don't think currently the, the kind of reporting, at the, at the level of detail that he proposes would either be practical for smaller businesses or indeed would be possible within the embrace of the current terms of the Companies Act. And quite a lot of that information would be highly confidential and might, uh, in extreme, well, actually not very extreme circumstances, might lead you to believe that someone in possession of all of, all of it could play a role in price fixing. So I can't see the Competition and Markets Authority being overly enthusiastic about uh, this proposal. I mean, I think one of the problems is that in a co that um, I don't know that it's I, as far as I can gather, it's not likely that um, the the report's authors, either Henry, who is the personal author, or his team, who have presumably been liaising with other departments, have actually checked whether these proposals have the support or could have the support of the departments that would be required to get them put into policy. Uh, to get them put into legislation, to get them implemented. And I think that's, as ever with these sorts of independent reports, a real difficulty. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember right the way back to the 1970s when James Callaghan asked Harold Wilson to create a report into the working of the city. And Wilson's report was radical and it was far-reaching. And very little of it ever happened. Uh, and in the end, the city reformed itself through Big Bang. And I suppose it's possible that some of Henry's intention is that this intervention will provoke soul searching in the industry across all parts of the supply chains, from, from farm through manufacturing, through retail and hospitality, to, to try and move the needle on a whole range of issues. And it's not just about obesity, it's also about the environment and so on. I think the difference here is that we're already doing that. The industry is already in full sail on a lot of these issues. And one of the difficulties, as uh, my colleague Andrew Opie, who, uh, who speaks for British Retail Consortium and in particular for its supermarket members, was saying the other day, the real difficulty here is we're all doing all of this, whether you're, we're all doing it at the pace that some uh, activists like Henry would want, and whether we're doing going to go far enough 
are moot points, but we are doing enormously radical things on many of these subjects. But the trouble is, it's not possible to do them all at the same time. When you're facing both the difficulties caused for many food manufacturers by our uh, by the trade and cooperation agreement and the and the bureaucracy and documentation that's required to to continue to import and export food post our exit from the EU and also in the post-COVID period. And so many of our members just this week are facing very significant labour shortages and huge threats from absence. Uh, and that that is, you know, it's, it's difficult to imagine that you can begin to conceive of what you're going to do on obesity or on long-term environmental change if half your workforce is off and you can't produce and you're worried about whether you'll be able to fulfill orders for the next three or four weeks. And that's the state of mind of much of the industry on a daily basis and has been for 16 months and looks like it's going to be for many months to come. Let me just remind everybody that you're listening to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drinks, sponsored by Clark Energy. Instead of the outset, that there's quite a lot of quite interesting and positive contributions um, uh, in the report, in, in the National Food Strategy Report, Henry Dibbleby. Uh, where do you think he's made a, a positive contribution that we can actually, as the industry, kind of get behind? Well, I think Henry is a good-natured man, and I think he is uh, genuinely committed to try and bring about change and uh, the kind of uh, reforms that will guarantee the future of the industry. I, th- I mean, I disagree... And I think as a, as a federation and our members will disagree with quite a lot of what he has to say, but I don't think we can disagree uh, with his intentions. And I think it would be mealy-mouthed not to recognise that some of the things that he's suggesting, in fact, several of the things he's suggesting are entirely commendable. Some of the stuff on school meals is very, very important. He's said some interesting things on... Uh, farming and uh, and the, the long-term retention of the or medium-term retention of payments to farmers he's uh, he's essentially gone along with the pr- position of the climate change commission on a number of environmental issues I'm not sure we would all agree with the need for a 30 percent cut in meat and dairy consumption but there's no da- doubt that that is a debate that we're going to have to have over the next few years so I think some of this is, much of this is a very important contribution to that debate, but it's very, very clear that it is only one contribution. I saw that, uh, yeah, I saw that he made recommendations, recommendations around um, food standards, especially when it came to international trade, and that echoes quite a lot of the work of the Trade and Agriculture Commission. Do you think that maybe if he would have consulted a little bit more with us um, as a federation, that uh, he could have kind of echoed some more of our calls that we've been making on government around international trade, and some of the things that will really help out the industry when it comes to exports? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, I, 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 have, I have talked to Henry on a number of occasions, both uh, through the prism of the FDF and through the Food and Drink Sector Council. I think his problem in his dealings with us is that he has it in mind that we are a conservative, with a small c, force, and that our members are not uh, committed to progress at the speed and at the uh, with the with the level of ambition uh, that he thinks is necessary, 
And so his fear is that we will do uh, we will do things to obstruct the progress and slow it down. And as a consequence, he's he's sort of tried to talk, I think, to the CEOs of the companies that he thinks are more progressive, uh, in inverted commas. And I think that's a mistake because first of all, those more progress if they really are more progressive, then those companies by by his own definition are out of line with the broad mainstream of the industry and therefore unlikely to be able to lead the industry in with the pitch and pace that he wants. And I think it's also the case that that he I don't think he's understood the nature of uh, of the manufacturing part of the industry. I don't think he's really I don't think it, I think it's quite difficult to really get across the variety and and the scale of fragmentation across our sector, seven, eight thousand firms of all shapes and sizes with loads and loads and loads of different perspectives operating in absolute multiple uh, sectors of the um, of the industry and therefore inevitably it's very difficult to bring those together with a, in a common action unless it's a unifying threat like COVID or um, or the EU exit where, where so many firms had a stake in the economic status quo. So I think it's I think he I think it's a misunderstanding of the way the industry works to be honest. But that's that's the way he's approached it, and I think he's, you know, he has produced an intensely personal report, which will form one contribution to the debate, which will now go on until the government white paper on the national food strategy comes out at the end of the year. Food and drink is the biggest manufacturing sector, and, and you just alluded to the complexity of it. So perhaps we should say he should cover every single component of it. But, but what do you think he missed out from his skills? Well, he's definitely missed out skills. Um, and I think his section on innovation is uh, valuable, but not, but like so much on written on innovation in, uh, in recent times, doesn't really, it talks about product innovation, but didn't really consider manufacturing practice innovation or process innovation or a whole range of other areas i don't think he says anything or if he does i apologize to him but i don't couldn't see anything on robotics on artificial intelligence on how those undoubtedly important potential investments for businesses would be financed and you know there's a whole area there of, of needed of what i would describe as fintech innovation to be able to fund the kind of manufacturing changes which will be vital if you're to do the reformulation at the scale and with the speed that he wants, you won't be able to do a lot of that taking sugar out of vast numbers of products without a, a real sea change in the way products are manufactured. And I, I think that he has missed that point. So this is, as you just said, this is one contribution to the, to the eventual white paper, which will be the real government national uh, food strategy. Uh, the Food and Drink Sector Council will be putting it FDF will be making it, no doubt. Many of our members will be contributing to thinking and other, many other interested parties. If, if you were writing that white paper, what would you like to see in it? Well, I think you've got to start with what the ambition is. So 
yeah, and, and and you've also got to remember that government has to be seen to address almost all the all the key concerns in a way that if you were a business you probably wouldn't even try uh you, you know in a business you can be extremely focused on the most uh, attractive parts of the market or the most neglected parts of the market or the places where you can uh, make the most advances quickly or where you can make the biggest profits and it, that focus isn't available to government they have to try and do everything or at least have an answer for everything and henry is sort of reflecting or, or henry's report sort of half reflects that so i think in the white paper we will have to see something on how government expects food security to be preserved over the next 20 or 30 years. I think it needs to sketch out a very clear and compelling vision of what the UK food industry should be seeking to achieve on behalf of the country in the next 20 or 30 years. And that means some choices about how far we go down the route of questioning our current balance of imported and homegrown product. Uh, and some of those are going to be really tricky and crunchy choices. I think the white paper will have to talk about the kind of investment that the government wants to see in the food industry, both from itself and from outside. And, you know, will we see, question of will we become, a, as we are, the leading, probably in many ways, the leading food manufacturing country in the world, or one of them, if we want to be even more attractive to external investment, and bear in mind how many of our big firms are domiciled abroad, whether it be in North America, Europe, Turkey, and that's going to be an important part of the white paper. What, what does the inward investment aspiration look like? I think we're going to ask what does manufacturing, modern manufacturing look like in food and drink? And I go back to what I said about robotics and artificial intelligence and then we have to ask some questions about how manufacture how food and drink in the uk across all settings how it contributes to our economic well-being to the health of the nation and to the government's agenda on leveling up uh, i mean i would want us to address if it were me writing it i would want to address not food poverty but poverty. It seems to me poverty is at the heart of so many of the problems in that we face. I mean, it, it's, it's topical in the sense of this report. It's topical in terms of the government's uh, wish to level up as between effectively the north and the south of the country. So I'd like to see the white paper address food and drink and its role in dealing with poverty, not just food poverty, but poverty. Uh, I'm not sure that it, what that contribution should be, but I think the government should try and be pretty clear on what it thinks it should be. And then uh, sort of alongside that, I think it's really important that we look at the economic contribution of food and drink and how we get businesses in the UK to invest in, in the industry. So, I mean, I think there's a whole load of really difficult and important issues that we need to consider in the white paper. And, and I think... The contribution that, that Henry has made is important, but I think the contribution that the industry makes through the Food and Drink Sector Council 
report will be, parallel report will be equally important. And then I think we should also hope to hear from individual businesses and other individuals who are interested in, uh, in their own views of how, this, uh, how these issues should be tackled. And all those ideas are free and available for the government. Thank you, Ian, and thank you for listening to this FDF podcast sponsored by Dark Energy. Uh, stay tuned for our next podcast, which should drop in about a fortnight's time. Cheers. Bye-bye. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors.